Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we come back this morning with joy to the Sermon on the Mount, which has really been such a great study, such an enriching study for us over the last several months. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 makes a straightforward, plain statement. It says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, God's will and God's desire for you and for me and for every Christian is that we be set apart from sin. That's what sanctification means. God desires you to be holy, to grow in holiness, and at the same time to diminish in your sinfulness. That's what God wants. That's what God asks of us. From the time that we're saved... Until the time we enter into God's presence in glory, He desires for us to be in this ever-increasing process of sanctification. It can be, however, a slow and, if we're honest, a frustrating process. It can be confusing at times. We all sort of feel that as we are striving about our daily life each week. A kind of frustration and a kind of uh, disappointment that we face over and over again. So it's not surprising that there have been people who have looked for shortcuts. They have looked for secrets. They've looked for some sort of formula that will get them out of the frustration and the difficulty and the hard work of this process of sanctification. They've looked for, if you will, a silver bullet that will finally, finally knock dead the battle that they have with sin or knock dead the sin that they battle with every day. Some secret that will bring it all to a sudden end and suddenly give them the holiness that they desire. Historically, this idea has been known as perfectionism. Or in some some people's minds, it's called uh, entire sanctification, associated with what historically has been known as the holiness movement or the Pentecostal holiness movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's this idea that God, after you are saved, at some time later, God frees you from depravity and original sin by a single act whereby He brings you to a state of, of entire devotion and entire obedience to God. Those who hold to this believe that this results in a kind of a a, a final cleansing of your heart, a final empowering of the Holy Spirit. It brings about a sudden victory over sin. There have been a number of people who have advocated this through the years, and there have been a number who have written against it. Perhaps most well-known was the Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield, in his great work called Perfectionism, where he traces this idea and this doctrine all the way back to John Wesley. This was Wesley's sort of uh, most uh, endearing legacy or most lauded uh, theological contribution in the minds of many people. Wesley, we know, is an English pastor who worked from within the the Church of England to bring about restoration and reform of true spirituality. And along with that, He tried to understand why there were so many who were in the state church but seemed to have no spiritual life. And rather than just acknowledging that they had no spiritual life, 
He imagined that they were just waiting on some subsequent experience that would give them this entire sanctification. Of course, it wasn't something that was limited to just Wesley or just the Wesleyans, his followers. It made its way, obviously, into Methodism, which grew out of Wesleyanism. It made its way into uh, Baptist circles, into Pentecostal circles, charismatic circles, Nazarene circles, uh, the Salvation Army, all kinds of groups who embraced this, this idea, this hope. They constructed a sort of a worldview where victory over sin would be something that's rather sudden and you might even say uh, just sort of easy one day. But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't picture it that way. While the Bible emphasizes the need for holiness... While it emphasizes the call of sanctification, it consistently pictures it as a battle. It's a battle with sin, it's a battle with temptation, it's a battle to the death. And it continues to the time of our death. It's a battle where we are continually having to crucify or put to death sinful desires. And it's described several places throughout the Scripture, Colossians 3, 5, for example, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans eight thirteen. if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And of course, the passage that we come to today in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 29, Jesus puts it like this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The process of sanctification is a battle. It's it's a brutal battle. These verses speak of it. They use this kind of language to describe it, the language of putting to death or crucifying, or in the older versions, we would say mortifying, mutilating, mangling, dismembering, butchering, all of those things. This kind of fierce language is the language, or this kind of violent language is the language of sanctification, It's forceful, it calls for decisive action against sin, although the break with sin is not always a decisive event. It is an ongoing and repeated process. We're putting to death things in our life again and again and again. We're mortifying sin over and over and over. And all of this is the calling that the Lord has given to us. All of this is His grave concern that we not only understand this, but that we know how to go about doing it. 
that we understand the importance of being separated from sin, of being sanctified, of being holy, and that we understand what it's going to take to engage in this kind of warfare and to engage in this kind of pursuit of holiness. Now, to that end, this is what the Lord's trying to help us understand here in Matthew chapter 5. He's trying to help us understand the seriousness of the battle and how the battle is won. And his message can be broken down, you might say, into two angles of attack in this battle against sin. Two angles of attack. The first one, the first angle would be this, that you, have, you and I have to destroy provisions for temptation. We have to destroy provisions for temptation. This is the language he uses. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, this is not calling for some sort of mild suppression, some sort of half-hearted restriction. This is absolute eradication. Strong, strong language. And by the way, this is not the only place Jesus uses this kind of language. Several times, it seems, in his ministry, he would return to this kind of imagery as he talks about the battle with temptations. For example, Matthew 18, he says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. You can see similar kind of language in Mark Chapter 9, where Jesus is once again talking about the battle, the, 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 the struggle against sin. So this seems to be one of those common ways that the Lord would speak about temptation and He would speak about sin. This is a battle against sin and, and, and not just against sexual temptations, although that's the immediate context in Matthew chapter 5, but all temptations, all kinds of temptations. Some people not recognizing what Christ is saying have unfortunately through the years misconstrued this, even to their own harm and their own detriment. Maybe most famously was Origen of Alexandria in the third century, who having battled sexual temptation for so long in his life, decided that he would follow the Lord's command literally and he made himself a eunuch in hopes that he would finally overcome his passions, he sadly realized it wasn't the final answer. It wasn't the final answer. He learned a hard way what should have been obvious to him in the context. Because Jesus has already told us in Matthew chapter 5 that the real source of temptation, the real source, I should say, of sin is in the heart He's already told us that, that, that it's from the heart that anger comes which results in murder. It's from the heart that lust comes that results in adultery. He's already explained that the real issues are in our heart. That's where the real source of the problem is. So if you gouge out your right eye, 
Your heart is the same. The anger is still there. The lust is still there. Not to mention the left eye is still there, right? Still see the same things. Cut off your hand. You still got the other one to take things and steal. So it it should be clear from what Christ says here that this is not some sort of literal command. What Jesus is saying in all this is that we must take decisive action against sin. That's why he gives this. This is what this has to do with battling sin. This is all this discussion. He's already talked about the heart, but but why here does he introduce discussion about the eyes and the hands? Well, it's figurative language to talk about severe, severe commitments, we might say. And all of it kind of flows uh, partly out of a Jewish idea of we might say the uh, importance, the essential, the necessary nature of the right hand and the right eye. In Jewish backgrounds, the right eye was considered to be the most accurate eye. The right hand was considered to be the most skillful hand. It was the hand that you would use if you were in battle to wield your sword. It was the hand that you would use if you're a craftsman to wield your tools. It was the hand that you would use to greet people or to bestow blessings on people. It was even the hand that you would use to sign contracts in as much as most people were right-handed as they still are. So by referring to the right hand or the right eye, Jesus was talking about the things which are perceived as most necessary, most essential, most critical. Those things that we might say are most cherished. And so the point is not that you need to literally mutilate yourself or maim yourself in your battle against sin. The point is that you have to be willing to give up and to separate yourself from whatever might be considered essential and whatever might be considered necessary in life. That's how serious you have to take the battle with sin. Whatever you cherish, whatever you cling to, whatever it is, it's not more important than being sanctified. It's not more important than being holy. In fact, whatever is more important than being holy, whatever is more important than being sanctified is too important. And it needs to be cut out of your life. Now, the cutting out of whatever it is is not the thing that's going to make you holy. In fact, the cutting off is the evidence that you are committed to holiness. Much like we saw that it's not the murder that makes you sinful, it's the sin in your heart that makes you murderous. It's not the adultery that makes you sinful, it's the adultery and the lust that's in your heart that makes you adulterous. Well, in the same way, It's not the cutting off that makes you holy. It's the commitment in your heart that makes you willing to cut off whatever it is that would be distracting, whatever it is that would be be sort of subduing of your spiritual pursuits. So, if the most precious thing that you have is more important to you than Christ-likeness, then you need to be willing to get rid of it. 
It's not something you stash away, something you put away in the cupboard to be brought out every so often to nibble on and comfort yourself. It's not something that you take to sort of put in the display case and admire, but always within reach. It's not something you pamper. It's not something that you sort of uh, uh, provide for. Jesus is using decisive language here. You crush it. You torch it. You cut it off. You put it to death. You absolutely destroy it. This is the kind of decisive action and language he uses. In fact, people who watch you may come to the conclusion that you hate the thing itself, that you despise the thing itself, when in fact it's just simply that you love Christ so much that you're willing to forego whatever it might be. In some ways, it's much like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. He says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, your loyalty and your devotion and your love of Christ ought to be so strong that there will be times when people misinterpret it. To mean that you don't love your family, that you don't love your, your relatives, that you don't love your father and mother. In fact, in some uh, contexts, Jesus even uses the word hate. You have to hate your father and mother and hate you, even your own life. There will be people who interpret your sort of radical action against temptations as evidence that you are against that particular thing or that particular group or that particular person or whatever it might be when that in fact is not the case. What in reality is happening is that you so love Christ and you are so jealous to guard that in your heart that you are willing to cut off anything that would challenge the importance of Him in your life. Whatever the relationship Whatever the ambition, whatever the possession, whatever the goal, whatever the commitment, you will give it up in order to pursue holiness and you will give it up in order to have victory over sin. Anything, anything no matter how necessary it might seem, anything no matter how essential it might seem, anything that militates against your soul has to be recognized and has to be dealt with ruthlessly. Now, the reason that you do this is the same reason that you and I, through a medical procedure, would amputate an arm or amputate a foot or remove an organ or whatever it might be. We do that. Why? We do that because we understand that that organ or that limb in some way has become so infected, so compromised that to leave it attached to our body, to leave it within our body, it is going to spread, it's going to infect the rest of our, our body, it's going to kill us. So in the same way, Jesus uses an image here that implies a recognition of imminent danger. You understand, in other words, the nature of sin. 
You understand the nature of this particular temptation, the danger of this particular temptation, and you're willing to do whatever is necessary. You're willing to cut off a limb, remove an organ in order to save the entire body. Some of these things are considered essential. Hands and feet, we take them off if we know that they're going to kill the whole body. Kidneys, even lungs, all kinds of organs, eyes, people remove them all the time. If they think that keeping that the thing in their body is going to somehow spread an infection or somehow cause another problem, they get rid of it. So all of this is what Jesus is saying. He's telling us we have to understand sin. We need to be savvy to its dangers. That involves analyzing its deceptive ways, meditating on its destructive results, reading biblical descriptions of how it operates and what it does and seeing its sinister goals and learning to resent sin the same way you would resent a true enemy trying to destroy you or trying to destroy your family or your loved ones. You learn to resent it. It is an enemy militating against your soul and you go on the attack and you destroy it. In fact, it's only by seeing this kind of destructive and poisonous nature that you would be willing to go to these extremes, to amputate something, to destroy something like this. Too few people spend the time thinking about what the spread of their greed or their selfish ambition or their lust or their anger, or their unforgiveness, or their bitterness may look like if it stays attached to them. Few people take time to really think about what their pride looks like. What they think about, they don't think about what their deceptions and their lies would look like if they leave it attached. And so they cut it off. And they cut off whatever the temptation is that brings it, whatever the uh, groups are that bring it, whatever the places are, whatever the, the, the connections are, whatever it is that's leading them down this pathway, they attack it. Now, someone might hear all this and might begin to say to themselves, that's, that's a miserable way to go through life. I mean, always cutting things off, always sort of putting things to death, always you know, denying yourself this and denying yourself that and separating yourself here and separating yourself there and always having to cut things off. That's a gloomy, unhappy way to live. But if that's the way you're thinking and you've misunderstood everything Jesus has said so far because he has repeatedly told you That there is a pathway to a life of blessedness. There's a pathway to a life of joy. But it leads through the pathways of poverty and sorrow and hunger and persecution and purity of heart. Blessed are those people, he says. 
Those are the ones who find blessedness. Those are the ones who finally discover fulfillment in life. This is the paradox of everything that Jesus is teaching, that the pathway to joy and the pathway to blessing is not the pathway that most people would suspect. Blessedness and joy are found first by following a pathway of mourning and sorrow and persecution. They're found by those who feel the sting of this humiliation of their sin, who no longer expect uh, honor spiritually because they've accepted their spiritual poverty. They're the people who aren't looking in the common places. So it's actually those who go through giving up so much and emptying themselves and divesting themselves of so much. It's actually those who wind up being filled, Jesus says, though they were hungry, comforted. Those who inherit the earth. Those who are ultimately recognized as the children of God. You find genuine joy and genuine blessedness because ultimately you find Christ. And you find all of this joy and blessedness through Christ. You find it in something that can never be taken away from you. No one can ever take it from you. And in someone who will never leave you through Christ. So you no longer need all that other stuff, really, since Christ is the answer. So whatever Jesus is describing here in terms of cutting off your right hand and gouging out your right eye is really no different. You separate yourself from those things that threaten to separate you from Christ. You separate yourself from those things which in fact are infecting you and in fact are killing you. You separate yourself from things that you may have formerly cherished, but they now are infecting you in a figurative sense in your in your body, you might say, but they're infecting you spiritually with a deadly disease of sin. And so it only makes sense that you would cut it off, that you would crucify it, that you'd put it to death. Now, it's important to understand, as you say all of that, it's important to understand that what Jesus gives us here is conditional. He begins with the word, if... If your right hand causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to sin. In other words, it may be true and it may not be true of you. There are things that will be a problem for you that may not be a problem for other people. Because there are things from your background, there are things, there are ways that you deal with anxieties, there are ways that you deal with stresses, there are ways that you are burdened in your conscience that other people may not be burdened. And for any number of reasons, there are things which may cause you to stumble that don't appear to cause other people to stumble. But you have to understand this. Holiness is not defined by the choices of other people. Holiness is not defined by the choices of other people. It is defined by your devotion to Christ above everything else. And anything in your life that would seek to replace Christ, anything in your life that would taint your testimony, that would cause you 
to harbor anger and bitterness and lust and greed or any of those things. Anything in your life that would replace your devotion to Christ as the enemy of your soul. And some of these things would, by most people, be considered acceptable. They would be considered maybe even good, maybe even profitable. I mean, a right eye is not bad. A right hand is not in and of itself bad. In fact, other people around you might actually find some of the things useful or profitable. But for you, it's a trap. That job, that ambition, that goal, that relationship, that group of friends, that activity, that pathway that you're considering. Sure, there are other people who've done it. But for you, it's leading you away from Christ. It's not edifying you. It's not building you up. Other people might see it as fine, but for you, it's a place of anxiety. For you, it's a place of greed. For you, it's a place of drunkenness. For you, it's a place of lust. For you, it's a place of of anger and bitterness. So it's not defined by what other people might find useful or acceptable. You cut it off. And as you do that, you recognize that people will not always understand. People will scoff and they will ridicule. They will conclude that you are unnecessarily forcing yourself to be miserable. That you're unnecessarily cutting things off. They will constantly try to persuade you that it's just fine, it's fine for them, it's fine for other people, that there's no problems. And so prepare yourself for a world where there's going to be a whole lot of people walking around with two eyes and you have one. And they're walking around with two hands and you've only got one because you're cutting it off and you're gouging it out. And people will not always understand. They won't understand why you're eliminating those activities. They won't understand why you don't go to those places. They won't understand why you don't look at those things, why you don't engage in those conversations and those debates or in those jokes or whatever it might be. They will scoff. And they will conclude that you are making yourself unnecessarily miserable in their minds. But it doesn't matter what they would conclude. If it's a cause of stumbling for you, Jesus says, you cut it off. You're constantly putting to death, constantly cutting off, constantly destroying whatever those sources of temptation are. That's the reality of this process of sanctification for you. And it's necessary for you to understand that angle of attack. But there's a second one, a second angle that you also need to understand, which Jesus also highlights here. Not only are you destroying those those sources of temptation, but you are determining priorities by eternity. You're determining priorities by eternity. If you're going to be willing to take this kind of radical action against anything in your life, it is because your priorities are eternal 
not temporal. They are eternal. Jesus says it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Again, in verse 30, it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell or go into hell. So the reason that you're willing to battle sin in this way is because you are evaluating things not primarily by the temporal satisfaction, not primarily by the temporal thrills, but you are evaluating them based on eternal consequences, eternal realities. These are not issues that are simply about immediate gratifications. It's not simply about the sort of the temporal relief from your sense of fear or your sense of anxiety or your sense of loss or whatever it might be. It's not about any of those sort of immediate temporal things. Your horizon is not just the next few days or the next few weeks or the next few months or even the next few years. Your horizon is eternity. And these are issues of eternal joy. And so Jesus says, you have to consider this angle in your battle against sin. You have to attack it with this kind of thinking. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, why can't I have both? I mean, I, I, I call myself a Christian. I've given my heart to Christ. I mean, I understand that He saved me, and I understand that He has promised me forgiveness of my sins and heaven and, and all of those things. So why can't I also indulge in some of these temporal pleasures, even though they bring temptations, and also have eternal joy? I mean, I believe in Him. Why not just go ahead and indulge in everything that everyone else is indulging in? Why do I have to gouge out my eye and cut off my hand? But all that misses a really core understanding of what Jesus is saying here. See, you're thinking of your sanctification as something separate than your justification. You're thinking of this process of being set apart from sin as something that's separate from your salvation. But the Bible doesn't speak about it that way. The Bible speaks about sanctification the same way it speaks about justification. It speaks about sanctification being set apart from sin as an event that happens the moment you come to Christ. Some people have tried to divide them. They've tried to think about the, the moment you get saved and then somewhere down the road, you sort of, uh, sort of uh, ramp up your devotion to Him and suddenly get very serious about being holy as if somehow there's a moment of salvation and then some subsequent moment where you have some sort of experience or some sort of elevated spirituality later on where you get serious about being removed from sin. But the Bible doesn't speak about it that way. It speaks about sanctification as something that happens when you come to Christ. 
For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, he says, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how he puts it all there together. When you were justified, you were sanctified. You were set apart from sin. You were separated from sin at that moment. He, he began the letter to the Corinthians in verse 2. To the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are sanctified is not simply something that happens to you down the road. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Or Hebrews 10.10 that I read from earlier, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So sanctification, first and foremost, is an event that happens at the moment you believe in Christ. It happens along with justification. It happens along with salvation. You are set apart from sin. In other words, the Bible never recognizes the possibility that someone would receive Jesus as the Savior without separating them from their sins. The Bible speaks about that moment of salvation as being a moment when you're set apart from God. He, he, Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So you have to understand the sanctification was something that happened when you believed. And then this has profound implications for the rest of your life. It means... That while you will have many, many daily decisions of cutting off and crucifying and putting to death all kinds of sources of temptation in your life, while that will happen over and over and over again in your life, it all flows out of the initial decision that you made to crucify yourself to begin with. And while you make these choices to walk away from things and to cut off things and to turn away from things again and again and again, it all flows out of your initial choice to give up your life, to lose your life for the sake of Christ. Listen to the way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. 
In other words, these were things that were previously a part of your life. These were things that normally you used to walk in. And these are the things that are the reason God is going to judge people in eternal hell. The wrath of God, he says, is coming against this. Or Paul's more explicit in Ephesians 5 verse 3. He says, let sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, it must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So, so you don't have this kind of lifestyle of, of immorality and impurity, and you don't even have the kind of speech that represents that kind of stuff through crude language and innuendo. He goes on to say, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is idolatrous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Don't let your friends deceive you. Don't follow their empty words when they say, you know, it's all right, it's okay. I mean, lots of people do this. I know people go to church that do this. It's okay. I mean, it's not a big deal. It's the way the world operates. Paul says, no, this is, this is why God is going to judge people. And he raises the critical issue of self-deception. If your commitment to holiness is only momentary, if your commitment to sanctification is just some sort of initial flash in the pan, if your commitment to separate yourself from certain things is just some sort of emotional reaction that you had through some event at church, or if it is only there when times are easy, or if it only exists when it really doesn't cost you very much, when it really isn't very uh, requiring very much sacrifice, if that's the only time that you're willing to follow God in holiness, you might be self-deceived. Because the evidence, Paul is telling the Colossians and he's telling the Ephesians, the evidence of your salvation is your continual sanctification. The evidence of your initial salvation is your willingness to lose your life. And the evidence of your salvation is your ongoing, continual willingness to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to crucify these things. And so, Jesus is telling us, you make these decisions over and over and over again. When you're battle, battling sin, you make these decisions to gouge out your right eye, to cut off your right hand, to amputate things that everyone else around you tells you there's no problem with that. It's, it's essential. It's necessary. 
This is just the way life is. And you decide anyway to cut it off. Why? Because you made that decision a long time ago. You committed your heart to Christ a long time ago. And that daily activity of cutting it off is just the evidence of the genuineness of that decision. But Jesus says, it's a lot better, a lot better to go through life with one eye and one hand. Missing some of the sort of temporal thrills that people talk about, it's a lot better to go through life that way than with both hands and both eyes to find out you were self-deceived and to be cast into hell. You're battling sin because you understand its dangers. You're battling sin because you understand it's an infectious, poisonous threats. You're battling sin because you understand the blessedness of life following Christ. You're battling sin because you find Christ to be so satisfactory. You don't need these other things. You're battling sin because ultimately you know that eternity is far better than anything that sin may offer you in this life. And so you're willing to do whatever it takes. Some of you haven't done that before. You've never made that commitment. You've never really contemplated what it is to lose your life so that you can find life in Christ. But this is what Christ tells you. That you will never find life until you find it in Him. That all the other stuff that you're dabbling with, it is nothing but destructive forces, sin creeping into your life and choking out your joy, your fulfillment, your life. And you will never find life until you lose your life and find it in Christ. And throughout the rest of your days, you can live that as you daily take up your cross and daily follow Him and daily find the blessing of that kind of discipleship. If you're here this morning and you want to know about life and you want to know about how to find life in Christ, we have a visitor reception. When we're done here in a moment, we'll close with a word of prayer and a song. Down the hallway to the right, I'll be there. Some of our other leaders will be there. We'd love to be able to meet with you. We'd love to hear how you sense the Lord working in your life and heart. So please take a moment and stop by. Let us have that opportunity. Let us be able to share with you from the Scripture God's answers to your sin, your guilt, and your eternity. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with, as I said, a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're so grateful for this reminder and so thankful for the clarity, the forcefulness of this word. We need to hear it. We who are so prone to to grow weary in our battle 
We need to remind ourselves of the fierceness of our opponent. Of the dangers of temptation and sin. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our hands and feet and strengthen our heart to go to war daily. To cut off whatever is necessary so that we can be fully devoted to our Savior. It is in Him and by Him that we will find everything we need. Full satisfaction. Full hope. Full joy. And we bless Him for all those gifts. In Christ's name, amen.